my wife and I recently picked up a couple of posters from Mondo. And if you don't know what that is, they're essentially just limited handcrafted posters that shouldn't be reprinted. And so they're rare, but more importantly, they're really high end printed and they're printed on really strong paper and they just they just look really impressive and they have this kind of unique quality to them and typically they're also alternate posters so they get original art i know if you've ever watched tiffany streams you may have seen her man thing poster i have this incredible star wars art poster up in the house and now we have a couple of other posters and that includes a batman the animated series episode poster depicting the episode I Am the Night, which I talked about at length actually over on the Kevin Conroy dedication episode, and Tiffany got an alternate variant cover edition of the comic book Witches from Scott Snyder and Jock. That is just the image of the huge witch in the tree doing its signature sound, chit 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 chit, and it's really huge, and I think it's bigger than what Tiffany anticipated, but it's so impressive that it's worth the price. It's worth getting a frame for it and putting it up in the house because of how damn cool it looks. But in addition to those posters, they were kind enough to also include this Robert Rodriguez's 20 Films Before You Die list that is printed on equally high quality paper, though the print themselves is pretty crappy. I think it's like a photocopy or some kind of like thing that Rodriguez put together, but it's a really fun little like breakdown of what Rodriguez thinks you should see before you die, or at least 20 of the movies you should see before you die. And I think I've seen about 10 or 11 of these things. This includes things like The Shining, Blade Runner, Close Encounters, Jaws, the Superman movie, Raiders, The Thing, Thunderball, The Fog, Vertigo, Out of the Past, Rock All Night, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Jason and the Argonauts, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, I think that's it, but there might be more. Oh, yeah, Rock All Night, The Godfather, that kind of thing. Creature from the Black Lagoon. And, you know, I've seen a whole bunch of these, and it's occurred to me that this was a thing. When I was in high school, film was a thing that I really identified with. And I don't know if it's because I'm a sucker for Americana and pop culture iconography, but I will say that I was always enchanted by people's encyclopedic knowledge of movies. They were able to cite director, cinematographer, producer. People knew who David O. Selznick were, were the kind of people that I wanted to know and emulate. And while that is not necessarily a personality trait, when you're in high school, you don't know any better, and so you just want to have as much knowledge as you can, or at least as much knowledge about the thing that you are suddenly obsessed with, and then you basically exhaust that until you find the next obsession. Certainly, my friends and I back then were very much examples of this phenomenon. But I do truly believe that movies are one of the few major contributions that America has made to the arts that we do really, really well. And obviously, we've certainly dominated the market because of our business acumen and our cutthroat approach to that entertainment industry. But every once in a while, we get it right. And there's something really valuable about recognizing when we did. It, it's, it's very interesting, actually, when you think about people's nostalgia and reverence for art when it comes to comic books or movies and what is considered high art or what is considered a classic and how that is rarely in dispute. And if it is, it's because those disputing it are attempting to be contrarian. And then 
the works that are made today being judged completely differently. Us being able to say, well, that's subjective because it's too new. Even if we recognize the same hallmarks from those works of the past. Certainly, you have involved yourself in the debate, whether you are just reading about it or actually actively talking about it, about whether Marvel movies are cinema or not. And those people who may question it being those creators or purveyors of art that is oftentimes not in dispute. Well, let me tell you something, Martin Scorsese. Your work was in dispute when you were making it. And only through the benefit of time passage do we then canonize those works as being untouchable. That being said, there are a few Scorsese works that are untouchable, or at the very least should be hailed as classics. But what I was getting at initially was that there are these works that we do consider to be classics and valuable to be learned from. And I know that I benefited very much from an active role my parents played in my interest in the film industry and my own pursuits to find works that were considered to be classics so that I could at least understand the context, the language that film fans, film buffs, and filmmakers all speak. As a kid, I grew up with comic books. That was my main love, comics and cartoons. And as I became an adolescent, I then moved to film. But now, as an adult, I can plainly see that there is some marriage between the two. Not necessarily culturally, and I don't believe artistically, but at least in terms of how I regard them. And so my approach to film back then certainly mirrors my approach to comics today. So we may tie this back into comics later on, but for now I'm just going to talk about movies. I truly believe that experience is one of the best teachers. Doing and experiencing is much more beneficial and productive than theory and discussion. Though discussion is, of course, I think the execution of that experience. You can't take inventory of what you've done without also hashing it out, I believe, with either another person or at the very least in some format like this, actually. But I can tell you that I would never have seen Vertigo if I didn't suddenly have an interest in film and know through essentially cultural osmosis that Hitchcock was a big deal. I remember being interested in science fiction largely because I was a Star Wars fan. And incidentally, when I was little, like let's say nine, I did not like Star Wars. I thought they were boring. My main preoccupation with Star Wars was sharing in the original action figures with a friend of mine. His father had picked up all the figures back in the 70s and 80s, and then his son and I used to play with them and act out our own adventures. And I think that's exactly what Lucas was going for, because, of course, Star Wars is a Joseph Campbellian myth, and as such is essentially a Mad Lib for any adventure story. And the action figures are the conduit through which you yourself can insert yourself into the adventure and generate meaning from what is essentially a template. Which I think gets to the heart of why Star Wars is so divisive today. It's because people ascribe meaning to Star Wars from their own perspective. It doesn't also help 
that we are currently, I believe, in a kind of meta-pop culture world. The work no longer speaks for itself. The creator has a work that they make in conjunction with the work in the form of commentary and podcasting that then speaks to the work and invites the audience to participate in the dialogue with the creator. The barrier between creator and creation has completely eroded to the point where we can't just have a work stand on its own. The only way we can have that now is if the creation is discovered after the creator has passed, or if the creator ends up being a recluse. But you'll find that no one is satisfied from the audience level with just getting a thing and absorbing it and then reacting to it in their own space, at least largely. The dissemination and proliferation of social media, I think, has spoken to that. But then I'm introduced to a person in high school who I immediately bond with, and I want to explore our friendship further, and I need cultural touchstones, and Star Wars was one of those things. Even though I didn't necessarily regard it, I had to learn to regard it, or at the very least look at it in another way. And I did, and found new love for Star Wars, in a way that I hadn't before, in a way that I really wasn't capable of before. And thanks to our mutual love of Star Wars, and his brother's deeper nerddom, we then discovered the world of science fiction. Of course, he had already explored a lot of that because of his relationship with his brother, but I had virtually no exposure to it. And I, of course, was one of those Luddites who had no idea what the value of science fiction was because basically my parents didn't really regard it. They were always encouraging, but the deeper conversations that I had with them never involved the fantastic because they just simply weren't interested in having those conversations. And their movie interests really reflected that. But because of my later pursuit in film, I was able to then strike up a new dialogue, a new language with my parents that was through movies and their priorities. But thanks to my new high school friendship, I was then able to experience things like Close Encounters and Blade Runner and revisit the Superman movie and The Thing and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now back then, as a kid, I fell asleep watching three of these movies, 2001, Blade Runner, and Close Encounters of a Third Kind. But never underestimate an adolescent's desire to impress somebody or their desire to exhaust an obsession. And so I went back and I rewatched them. And I also received books on filmmaking and I used the internet to investigate further about how films are made and theory about movies. So when I reapproached some of these movies that definitely were snooze fests for a 14-year-old, I was able to keep myself awake by focusing on other aspects, focusing on what was valuable according to what I perceived to be my betters. And sometimes, honestly, it's not about liking the thing that you're watching. To absorb, understand, and internalize a movie. Sometimes it's just recognizing the achievement of the movie and recognizing what it is they were trying to accomplish. I hate to say this, but sometimes it is more about the achievement than it is about story. Jaws is another one where I had to be in my 30s to really appreciate Jaws. For the longest time, I didn't get it. I didn't want to get it. It was very simple to me. I understood the musical composition. Oh, John Williams created a villain in only three notes. And oh, Steven Spielberg had such a hard time making the movie. And it was a real nightmare to make. And the shark didn't work and all this stuff. Maybe it's about triumph over adversity, blah, 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 blah. But sometimes you just have to be in a different place to appreciate something 
like Jaws. And yes, that is metaphorical. I'm not just saying that about Jaws. I'm saying sometimes you need to be in a different place to appreciate a type of fruit or a piece of art or a family member or a book they forced you to read in school. That in my pursuit of learning more about this sudden obsession, I was inadvertently, subconsciously, rounding myself out to being more open-minded and more understanding and more patient with the world around me in the future, which is funny to say because, of course, I'm notoriously unsatisfied with the world around me, and I certainly am critical of a lot of things that I purport to like. But like I said, continuous exposure to those experiences, to those works that you're interested in are a college education because you will learn what you want to say and how you want to say it by seeing other people achieve it masterfully. Of course, the next step is determining what role you play in it. Are you a consumer of this art? Are you a purveyor of this art? Or are you a creator in some way of this art? Naturally, I assumed I was going to be a film director, and so I immediately went into obsessing over film directors and experiencing works by especially controversial filmmakers or certainly celebrated-slash-attention-getting filmmakers. I'd start writing, which I always loved to do, but now I had a focus, I had a purpose, because when you're writing short stories or novels, you don't really know in the 90s or 2000s, how to get that into the hands of anybody who might actually read it, how to get an audience out of it. For the most part, my audience has consisted of my parents and maybe a friend. And if I had, let's say, 10 friends, I had maybe one who might actually deign to read it. And so you needed to make it in some other way that made it more exciting to read, or at the very least, get it into another avenue so your thing could actually see the light of day. And that was, in my case, the form of scripts. And so I would go to this website, which I don't know if it still exists. It's called Drew's Script-O-Rama. And I would read movie scripts during my off periods and sometimes during my on periods at high school so that I would learn how to write scripts properly. And then I just write them. And I remember writing the worst stuff. And that's the most important thing. When we're talking about experience, part of the experience is doing, especially if you want to be among the creators. And so I just wrote the worst crap. And I just got it all out of me. Because, of course, when you are sitting down to write and you are as obsessed and on fire about something like movies or comics, you want to get it out there as soon as possible. And you have this all this energy and all this excitement and you're like, okay, here it is. And either you realize that you're not as good as you thought, you realize that it's not as powerful as you assumed, or you just write it all and get it all out there. And then you read it and you go... Well, this is either awesome or not, and that's another important skill. And it basically takes you down the road of learning these really important skills that I think do have practical life application, but in the context of, like, I want to be an artist and I want to create works of art in terms of movies or comics or stories, you need to have this kind of wake-up call that you are not a genius. You are barely an artist, and it's going to take work to be any good. It's funny thinking about how much we know about 
the things we love. And then going out into the world and assuming that everyone speaks the same language. Because as it turns out, by and large, most people who consume entertainment don't also want to know who the second unit director was or that there's an extra that was used three times in this episode or that it took six months to get one shot right in this movie that was made in 1989. And despite the fact that some of us may have dedicated our entire lives to knowing this minutia, it's okay. And that there are just different strokes overall. And so you'll get no judgment from me if you read comics or watch movies and don't want to know how the sausage gets made. Because for the most part, you're not alone. For the most part, the people like me are in the minority. Especially if your relationship with entertainment is purely transactional consumption. If you just love movies and love TV and love comic books, and you just want to read them, watch them, whatever, that is entirely valid. And it is completely understandable. But if you want to make them, if you want to be creative, if you want to say you want to do those things, I think it is fundamental that you involve yourself in the process. And that doesn't mean tomorrow you quit your job and you become an intern at Marvel. It could be something as simple as reading a blog post written by an editor. It could be something as simple as listening to an awesome podcast in which they talk to a creator who seeks to demystify the process. But however you pursue that knowledge, one of the most important things is to actually read or watch those things that you want to make. You have to be an expert, at least a personal expert. You know, you want to write or make westerns? You'd better know westerns, baby. Or you'd better have a really unique point to make about westerns that also has commercial applicability. And I don't want to make it sound like it has to be transactional, it has to be commercial, it has to be capitalistic. But the people who are going to give you money to do these things are. And so you gotta, you gotta throw them bone once in a while. But you know, we had Dan DiDio, formerly of DC Comics, come by, and he had this to say in respect to approaching comics, writing, and also the differences between Marvel and DC. When the comic fan kicks in when you're working, one of the first things I did was, there was a bunch of like mystery stories or untold stories that you you create your own conspiracy theories of how things certainly came about. Yep. So I, I actually did some behind the scene churching and I found out most of the time, it's mostly by accident and design and <laughs> certain things happen, you know? And yes. it's a little disappointing, but actually it's a little heartening too because you'd hate to think that these people were manipulating things so much in so many ways, but it was actually just, just the way things worked in those days. Uh, and I, like I said, I spent a lot of time in my earlier days just studying and understanding the craft of comics. Um, you know, I, I was a big enjoyer of all the various fan genes. I love the behind the scenes as much as I love the comics themselves. So I was always wanting to know more about the characters and stories. And even when I was working in television, I found ways to get involved with comics through some of the talent that I would work with or just uh, doing a little side jobs on the on the time for publicity reasons and things like that for other companies. Right. So it was kind of fun, you know, but it, it's, it was always a learning process. And even now, you know, I mean, even after 18 years of DC, I still think there's so much more to learn. I always, uh, I always identify the difference between Marvel and DC. And if you look at DC, uh, they had a very strong editorial staff with all very unique points of view and vision. 
So that's why you could tell the difference between a different editorial group on who handling what books. Yeah. That's why Superman book would feel decidedly different than the world's finest book and the world's finest book would feel different than the brave and bold book and so on. Cause they all sat with different editors and they all, each editor really had a very strong imprint of their personality on those books. Mm. When you go to Marvel, you have, you have Stanley as basically the architect, the primary creator, uh, writer direction for, you know, working in conjunction with so many great artists, but you know, Stan's running, running the ship there. And then after Stan leaves, Roy Thomas takes over and he pretty much just, it's just like passing a baton. They're running a relay race. No, right. he, Roy didn't run in his own direction. He was still running in the same path, which was good. And even when he left, there was this, this cavalcade of editor in chiefs over a short period of time with people just running through that door, but they all maintain the same direction. Right. And then Schroeder comes in and he maintains a direction for the next 10 years. So you have this level of consistency. Yeah. And more importantly, you have an interpretation of the character that comes imprinted on everybody coming in. So even when people come in, they're not going to come in and say, this is the way a character should do, or this is what I think he should do. They already know how the character behaves because it's been consistent for so long. DC, not quite as consistent, so it allowed for more input for creators to come in and do their interpretations more so than stick with what the tonality was in a uniform fashion. That's a fascinating point because it may inform the reason why there is there had been over the last 10 15 20 years such a vitriolic response when the status quo is shifted yeah i mean i'm sure and, and being a comic book fan for so many years in both your and my respect yeah. uh you know you know that the letters pages were curated and i'm sure okay. there were angry responses back then and it only kind of feels like there are more angry voices today because there is no barrier to entry for those angry voices correct but because of the consistency and because of the like towing of the line so to speak there is kind of a continuity of expectations Mm -hmm. and so it's not that they were used to having their expectations changed it's more that maybe even though those changes were very gradual and and almost organic or against the grain like it really took a lot of effort to change the status quo Right, right. And, you know, and, and I mean, right now also the, the starts, the stops and starts and restarts. And it's almost like um, there's no, there's no handoff. It is almost, it's, as I said, it, there's always a feeling of, there's always this weird feeling of scorched earth when somebody leaves a book yes. and somebody else coming on. And, you know, I, I look back at some old Marvel and I was just, uh, I was just commenting this, I was having a conversation about this just the other day with someone about how you can have a multi-part story and have different writers taking different parts of it on an ongoing basis, and it would still feel seamless. Yeah. And at that point, it felt like there's a strong editorial direction, but still allows the creators to come in and, and do their thing. But they didn't, nobody tried to drastically change the concept um, as soon as they walked in the door. They came in and really tried to maintain the consistency. And then ultimately, once they got their own comfort with a the character, then they start to put their own brand and voice upon it, you know? Regardless of how you feel about Dan and his decisions that he's made, you can't deny that he's had a lot of experience and there's a lot you can learn from that experience. Hey, speaking about blending the lines between like creators and corporations versus the audience, we talked a little bit on a previous show about superhero or comic book sequels we'd like to see made today, and obviously Ben suggested Dread 2. And then I think that day or the day after, there was a huge swell of rumors surrounding the idea that Dread 2, the movie starring Carl Urban, was in development. And it turned out that it was a clickbait article and it actually was not. 
that there is no plan for Dread 2. And indeed, there wouldn't be, because the first Dread didn't make any money. In fact, it lost money, unfortunately. I love the first Dread movie, and not the first Judge Dread movie from the 90s with Stallone, but rather the Dread movie from 2012. That movie is dope, and definitely would be cool to get a sequel. And yet... Had a budget of $45 million, made $41 million. So that's all you need to know. The movie tanked hard, unfortunately. And so there is no studio alive that would greenlight a movie that would make less than its initial budget, not including the marketing budget. Woof. That is a real loss. <laughs> but the way we found out it was fake was because 2000 AD, the publishing company that owns the rights to Dread, commented on our episode. Not about the episode contents, unfortunately, just the pinned comment where we reference the article that supposedly came from a legitimate source. But I'd say that 2000 AD knows better than that website. And so it was interesting just to get a word from the company. We're like, hey, it turns out they're making this movie according to this news website. And then the publisher comes out and goes, hey guys, yeah, no, it's fake, sorry. That's, I guess, a good part of the blurring of lines between these two groups. The fact that we can get almost immediate confirmation about whether or not something's legitimate. So that was kind of funny, but also, you know, you see, I think, this kind of animosity from the entertainment industry about how the rules have changed, the game has changed, everything's changed, there's an expectation of being forthcoming, of creating additional content, of following all these other sources, and, you know, it's not enough to just make a movie, you also have to do the press tour. Okay, well, we all learned how to do that. Well, now, instead of the press tour, now it's like, well, nobody watches the press videos where the actor sits down and talks to some rando instead could the actor play with like a basket of puppies while we ask questions and then it's well could the questions be asked by tiktokers and could it actually be on your phone instead of actually being in a studio of any kind you know like all this stuff keeps changing because that's the nature of the market and I think there's kind of like this like oh, like this resistance to it they're they're kind of like why? Why should I have to change? They're the ones who are watching this stuff. Like, why should I convince them to watch something when they don't know what they want to watch? And it's like, look, buddy, because there's too much to watch. Because you poisoned the well with overabundance. It's like, I didn't know that there was something called water poisoning until they had that hold your Wii for a Wii radio contest in which a woman killed herself because she drank too much water and didn't relieve herself. And that might also be fake. Who knows? Although I'm not asking you to confirm it. I'm just saying that there is such a thing as overabundance. And we've talked about it at length and I don't want to dedicate this whole episode to it. I'm just saying that the entertainment industry definitely is culpable in making competition for themselves. So I guess the least they could do is some kind of TikTok challenge to let me know that they want me to go see some movie. It's really funny to me how, in my line of work, I have to move heaven and hell to let people know that a new episode of something is out. I have to follow all the channels. I have to try different things. You know, my routine, so to speak 
when any new piece of content we produce comes out is I got to go to Twitter, which of course is becoming more and more irrelevant every day. I got to go on Reddit, post it on our subreddit. I got to go to Instagram, maybe post a story or a post. I got to go to our Discord, let the Discord people know. Got to post it to our Facebook group and our Facebook page. And I also have to go to Tumblr and post it on there. That's right, we have a Tumblr. I also have to post it on the community tab. And sometimes that's done and sometimes that isn't. But you know what I also could do? I could make a story about it on both YouTube channels to let the whole audience know that there's a new episode of something out. And this is standard procedure. This is what is expected. This is the barest minimum that I can do to let people know that something new is out because I can't rely on YouTube to simply do their job and let them know. Originally, you'd get a notification if a new video came out. And then you had to click the bell for notifications. And then you had to turn on all notifications in order to get notified at all. So now most people don't want to be inundated. Most people don't want to do all the steps that it takes to become inundated. So I totally get that. But in my line of work, I've got to do what I got to do. Sometimes that means making an original piece of content to let people know that another piece of original content came out. It's insane. But then you look over at the comic book industry and you're like, what do you even do? There's this complacency that I'm seeing and it is just so wholly unearned because there are YouTubers out there who know they don't have to do all of the hoop jumping that people like us do. You know, they're like, well, A, I have a person that does all those things for me and B, we do not need to cross our T's and dot our I's to let people know that a video that's going to get 3 million views is coming out. Hell, they already know. And what's more, you know, you see the hierarchies here. YouTube is like, well, they're already successful, so we need to also favor them so they maintain their success because they make a lot of money, and as a result, they make us money. So there is some kind of system in place for them. But that is success breeding success. That is success enjoying the fruits of success. Whereas in the comic book industry, you have these companies that want to appear totally confident, totally solvent. They have all their ducks in a row, but also somehow manage to maintain they're the little guys and they need your help. And it's a volatile industry and it could all come crashing down at any moment. You don't get to cry poverty and also not do any of the legwork to market your stuff. You can't pull a Flanders and say, I've tried nothing and I'm all out of ideas. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. When a new book comes out and it is from a big two publisher, let's not even rope Image and Boom and Dark Horse and everybody into this. Let's just say it's one of the big two publishers and they have this flagship book or this brand new book, or maybe it's a niche book that they want people to try out. It's a book that normally wouldn't succeed, so it needs a little bit of extra help. What do they do? They tell the creator, well, I hope you built a brand and I hope you use what people like Salad Comic Pop uses to inform your fans to buy your book. No, 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 no. That ain't my book if Marvel and DC is publishing it. No, no, no. That's their book and it's their responsibility to get their audience to buy it. If I, as the creator, want more of my audience to buy it, or if I'm especially proud of it, then maybe I'll use my celebrity, limited though it may be, to inform my audience that it's out or to hopefully get them to buy it. I get why independent books are self-marketed 
you know, you look at Zdarsky's Public Domain, which is a book that you may or may not have ever heard of, but the first volume is coming out on Monday. And by the way, it's a really good book. It's a nice slice of life, meta comics kind of thing, so you should definitely check it out if you're of a mind. But he's got to sell that book because it's an image book, he's on the hook for it, and he benefits if it succeeds. You know, this corporate comic book comes out like Spider-Man or Batman, I got to market it myself. And the reason I've got to play ball and do that, even if it should be on their dime, is because I want to keep working for them. Because if sales dip, then I get ousted. So it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. I got to inundate my audience with constant updates like I am some kind of online content creator. If I work for Marvel or DC making a comic book, or I don't, and I run the risk of losing that audience. That's messed up. But look at the way in which Marvel and DC promote their work. They do it on the backs of their creators, and they circulate it amongst who? The outlets. And really, it's the outlets that were popular 10, 15 years ago. And even then, you'll notice that it's not quite the same pomp and circumstance. There's no big fanfare when a press release comes out or a several-page preview comes out. And sometimes they'll also reach out to, like, Deadline or The Hollywood Reporter if they think it's really big. But if it's going to be really big, then it'll sell. And it will get the attention of them anyway. But you can tell they're like, no, we know what's going to be generally popular versus what's going to be a Critical Darling. Obviously, they have no regard for Critical Darlings because Critical Darlings do not equal sales. But marketing and promotion should not fold their arms. And I'm not, by the way, disparaging them. I don't necessarily know how they do what they do or what they do. But I do feel as though not enough is being done. But it really is giving off the impression that those departments are kind of folding their arms and going, what is worthy of promotion? What should get promoted versus what pleases me? And even then, I don't know what does. I don't know what they feel is worth the time and effort when really it all should, shouldn't it? If it's all being sold, why would you disparage anything or give preferential treatment to one thing over another? And I don't have a brilliant solution because as you can see, we're not hugely popular and I do all of my due diligence and it takes up a lot of time. It doesn't take up too much time, but it is work that needs to get done. And I don't have innovative solutions for how to get podcasts and YouTube videos into the eyeballs and ears of a potential audience. Maybe I should. You know, I talked earlier about how experience is really important. It's the most educational thing you could have. Well, my experience has taught me that bootstraps and grindstones are horseshit. So what's the solution? Where do we go from here? How do we innovate? You know, what should the comic book industry be doing to promote their books and get new readers? What should we be doing to promote our shows and get new audience members? And while I explore this existential quandary, you need to get to work, so I will see you later. I want to thank you so much for hanging out with me and subscribing and listening, and I will see you on the next episode of Wake Up With Comic Pop. Have a great day.